This month's bandwidth is brought to you by Psychedelic Water. Legal psychedelics suspended in green tea and then put inside of a can for you. Psychedelic Water. Who needs a Tillinghast resonator when you've got psychedelic water? Are you a curvy girl? Do you know a curvy girl? You love a curvy girl. Check out the show links for curvy girl. Plus size clothing for plus size women. Size up ladies. Pretty good stuff. I think I've got a, I've got a sickness for the thickness and I have to recommend curvy girl. All right. Also, Larry, fine, fine student instruments, beginner's instruments. If you want to modify a guitar, check out Glary. If you want to get into guitars, if you love guitars, Glary. Things from another world. It's a store that has art. It has toys. It has comics, graphic novels. It is the place if you like that kind of stuff. Dave and I have talked about it in the show before. They were ever a sponsor. Dave likes to check out their stuff. I like to check out their stuff. They're pretty cool. Toys, art, graphic design, not graphic design, graphic novels for you. Things from another world. Check out the show notes. Uh, check out the links on, on our website, PGTTCM. We've got specific stuff there to let you know what they've got going on for special. Anyway, thank you again so much, and back to the show. You're listening to KZOM, Olean Public Radio. We've done this in the past, but this is a better coffee, and when a better coffee shows up, hey, I'm going to put it on and take the other one off. So if you liked the old copy of The Terror, well, you should, you should download it. Go to pgttcm.com, and then that'll send you on another link. That'll send you on another link because it's such an old episode. I don't even know if it was the same podcast uh, provider that I was using when I started our... Uh, Anyway, yeah. yeah. Hit. So, Arthur Mackin. We know Arthur Mackin. We love Arthur Mackin. Uh, famous Welsh writer. Uh, wrote The White People, Great God Pan. Uh, we have episodes of people talking about Arthur Mackin, so go into the archive, dive around for that. I believe uh, probably Ken Hyde or Andrew Grace talking about Arthur Mackin in the past. And yeah, no, that's probably going to be somewhere around 2017, 2018, 2019. We have a lot of that kind of stuff. So check that out. And it may not say People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. It may say Black Clock Audio Tales. So yeah. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, this should be two chapters 
a little intermission with some commercials to help pay the bills. But yeah, and it should be about seven episodes. So hopefully you're enjoying this if you're several episodes into this. And I hope you're having a good commute. I hope you're having fun folding laundry. I hope you're having fun watching your kid at the playground while you do whatever you do. I hope you're having a good flight and that uh, you make your connections safely. I hope that your workday is going well, or I hope that, uh, you know, you're just, your day off is going well too. And uh, yeah, everything's cool and chill. All right, well, here we go with some Terra from Arthur Mackin to mess up your tranquil lives. I haven't used that voice for a while. I hope I didn't blow anyone's ears out. Okay, here we go. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your ma, tell your pa, or I'll send you down to Sathagwa. Go to the shop. Recording by Dion Johns, Salt Lake City, Utah. The Terror by Arthur Mackin. Chapter 13, The Last Words of Mr. Secretan. I slept ill that night. I awoke again and again from uneasy M dreams, and I seemed in my sleep to hear strange calls and noises and a sound of murmurs and beatings on the door. There were deep, hollow voices, too, that echoed in my sleep, and when I woke, I could hear the autumn wind, mournful, on the hills above us. I started up once with a dreadful scream in my ears, but then the house was all still, and I fell again into uneasy sleep. It was soon after dawn when I finally roused myself. The people in the house were talking to each other in high voices, arguing about something that I did not understand. It is those damned gypsies, I tell you, said old Griffith. What would they do a thing like that for, asked Mrs. Griffith. If it was stealing now, it is more likely that John Junkins has done it out of spite, said the son. He said that he would remember you when we did catch him poaching. They seemed puzzled and angry, so far as I could make out, but not at all frightened. I got up and began to dress. I don't think I looked out of the window. The glass on my dressing table is high and broad, and the window is small. One would have to poke one's head around the glass to see anything. The voices were still arguing downstairs. I heard the old man say, well, here's for a beginning anyhow, and then the door slammed. A minute later, the old man shouted, I think, to his son. Then there was a great noise, which I will not describe more particularly, and a dreadful screaming and crying inside the house and a sound of rushing feet. They all cried out at once to each other. I heard the daughter crying, It is no good, mother. He is dead. Indeed, they have killed him. And Mrs. Griffith screaming to the girl to let her go. And then one of them rushed out of the kitchen and shot the great bolts of oak across the door, just as something beat against it with a thundering crash. I ran downstairs. I found them all in wild confusion, in an agony of grief and horror and amazement. They were like people who had seen something so awful that they had gone mad. I went to the window looking out on the farmyard. I won't tell you all that I saw, but I saw poor old Griffith lying by the pond 
with the blood pouring out of his side. I wanted to go out to him and bring him in, but they told me that he must be stone dead, and such things also, that it was quite plain that anyone who went out of the house would not live more than a moment. We could not believe it, even as we gazed at the body of the dead man, but it was there. I used to wonder sometimes what one would feel like if one saw an apple drop from the tree and shoot up into the air and disappear. I think I know now how one would feel. Even then, we couldn't believe that it would last. We were not seriously afraid for ourselves. We spoke of getting out in an hour or two, before dinner anyhow. It couldn't last because it was impossible. Indeed, at 12 o'clock, young Griffith said he would go down to the well by the back way and draw another pail of water. I went to the door and stood by it. He had not gone a dozen yards before they were on him. He ran for his life, and we had all we could do to bar the door in time. And then I began to get frightened. Still, we could not believe in it. Somebody would come along shouting in an hour or two, and it would all melt away and vanish. There could not be any real danger. There was plenty of bacon in the house, and half the weekly baking of loaves, and some beer in the cellar, and a pound or two of tea, and a whole pitcher of water that had been drawn from the well the night before. We could do all right for the day, and in the morning it would have all gone away. But day followed day, and it was still there. I knew Treff Loin was a lonely place. That was why I had gone there, to have a long rest from all the jangle and rattle and turmoil of London that makes a man alive and kills him too. I went to Trefloin because it was buried in the narrow valley under the ash trees, far away from any track. There was not so much as a footpath that was near it. No one ever came that way. Young Griffith had told me that it was a mile and a half to the nearest house, and the thought of the silent peace and retirement of the farm used to be a delight to me. And now this thought came back without delight, with terror. Griffith thought that a shout might be heard on a still night up away on the alt, if a man was listening for it, he added doubtfully. My voice was clearer and stronger than his, and on the second night I said I would go up to my bedroom and call for help through the open window. I waited till it was all dark and still and looked out through the window before opening it, and then I saw over the ridge of the long barn across the yard what looked like a tree, though I knew there was no tree there. It was a dark mass against the sky with widespread boughs, a tree of thick, dense growth. I wondered what this could be, and I threw open the window, not only because I was going to call for help, but because I wanted to see more clearly what the dark growth over the barn really was. I saw in the depth of the dark of it points of fire and colors in light, all glowing and moving, and the air trembled. I stared out into the night, and the dark tree lifted over the roof of the barn and rose up in the air and floated towards me. I did not move till at the last moment when it was close to the house, and then I saw what it was and banged the window down only just in time. I had to fight, 
and I saw the tree that was like a burning cloud rise up in the night and sink again and settle over the barn. I told them downstairs of this. They sat with white faces. And Mrs. Griffith said that ancient devils were let loose and had come out of the trees and out of the old hills because of the wickedness that was on the earth. She began to murmur something to herself, something that sounded to me like broken-down Latin. I went up to my room again an hour later, but the dark tree swelled over the barn. Another day went by, and at dusk I looked out, but the eyes of the fire were watching me. I dared not open the window. And then I thought of another plan. There was the great old fireplace with the round Flemish chimney going high above the house. If I stood beneath it and shouted, I thought perhaps the sound might be carried better than if I called out of the window. For all I know, the round chimney might act as a sort of megaphone. Night after night, then, I stood in the hearth and called for help from nine o'clock to eleven. I thought of the lonely place deep in the valley of the ash trees, of the lonely hills and lands about it. I thought of the little cottages far away and hoped that my voice might reach to those within them. I thought of the winding lane high on the alt and of the few men that came there of nights, but I hoped that my cry might come to one of them. But we had drunk up the beer and we would only let ourselves have water by little drops, and on the fourth night my throat was dry, and I began to feel strange and weak. I knew that all the voice I had in my lungs would hardly reach the length of the field by the farm. It was then we began to dream of wells and fountains, and water coming very cold in little drops out of rocky places in the middle of a cool wood. We had given up all meals, now and then, one would cut a lump from the sides of bacon on the kitchen wall and chew a bit of it, but the saltiness was like fire. There was a great shower of rain one night. The girl said we might open a window and hold out bowls and basins and catch the rain. I spoke of the cloud with burning eyes. She said, we will go to the window in the dairy at the back, and one of us can get some water at all events. She stood up with her basin on the stone slab in the dairy and looked out and heard the splashing of the rain falling very fast, and she unfastened the catch of the window and had just opened it gently with one hand for about an inch and had her basin in the other hand. And then, said she, there was something that began to tremble and shudder and shake as it did when we went to the choral festival at St. Tiello's and the organ played, and there was the cloud and the burning close before me. And then we began to dream, as I say. I woke up in my sitting room one hot afternoon when the sun was shining, and I had been looking and searching in my dream all through the house, and I had gone down to the old cellar that wasn't used, the cellar with the pillars and the vaulted room, with an iron pike in my hand. Something said to me that there was water there, and in my dream I went to a heavy stone by the middle pillar and raised it up, and there beneath was a bubbling well of cold, clear water, and I had just hollowed my hand to drink it when I woke. I went into the kitchen and told young Griffith. I said I was sure there was water there. 
He shook his head, but he took up the great kitchen poker, and we went down to the old cellar. I showed him the stone by the pillar, and he raised it up, but there was no well. Do you know, I reminded myself of many people whom I have met in life. I would not be convinced. I was sure that, after all, there was a well there. They had a butcher's cleaver in the kitchen, and I took it down to the old cellar and hacked at the ground with it. The others didn't interfere with me. We were getting past that. We hardly ever spoke to one another. Each one would be wandering about the house, upstairs and downstairs, each one of us, I suppose, bent on his own foolish plan and mad design, but we hardly ever spoke. Years ago, I was an actor for a bit, and I remember how it was on first nights, the actors treading softly up and down the wings by their entrance, their lips moving and muttering over the words of their parts, but without a word for one another. So it was with us. I came upon young Griffith one evening, evidently trying to make a subterranean passage under one of the walls of the house. I knew he was mad, as he knew I was mad when he saw me digging for a well in the cellar. But neither said anything to the other. Now we are past all this. We are too weak. We dream when we are awake, and when we dream, we think we wake. Night and day come and go, and we mistake one for another. I hear Griffith murmuring to himself about the stars when the sun is high at noonday, and at midnight I have found myself thinking that I walked in bright sunlit meadows beside cold rushing streams that flowed from high rocks. Then at the dawn figures in black robes carrying lighted tapers in their hands pass slowly about and about and I hear great rolling organ music that sounds as if some tremendous rite were to begin, and voices crying in an ancient song shrill from the depths of the earth. Only a little while ago I heard a voice which sounded as if it were at my very ears, but rang and echoed and resounded as if it were rolling and reverberated from the vault of some cathedral, chanting in terrible modulations. I heard the words quite clearly. Incipit liber ire domini de nostri. Here beginneth the book of the wrath of the Lord our God. And then the voice sang the word, Aleph, prolonging it, it seemed through ages, and a light was extinguished as it began the chapter. In that day, saith the Lord, there shall be a cloud over the land, and in the cloud a burning and a shape of fire and out of the cloud shall issue forth my messengers. They shall run all together. They shall not turn aside. This shall be a day of exceeding bitterness without salvation. And on every high hill, saith the Lord of hosts, I will set my sentinels, and my armies shall encamp in the place of every valley. In the house that is amongst rushes, I will execute judgment. And in vain shall they fly for refuge, to the munitions of the rocks, in the groves of the trees, in the places where the leaves are as a tent above them, they shall find the sword of the slayer, and they that put their trust in walled cities shall be confounded. Woe unto the armed man, woe unto him that taketh pleasure in the strength of his artillery, for a little thing shall smite him, and by one that hath no might 
shall he be brought down into the dust. That which is low shall be set on high. I will make the lamb and the young sheep to be as the lion from the swellings of Jordan. They shall not spare, saith the Lord, and the doves shall be as eagles on the hill and Gedi. None shall be found that may abide the onset of their battle. Even now I can hear the voice rolling far away, as if it came from the altar of a great church, and I stood at the door. There are lights very far away in the hollow of a vast darkness, and one by one they are put out. I hear a voice chanting again with that endless modulation that climbs and aspires to the stars and shines there and rushes down to the dark depths of the earth again to ascend. The word is Zane. Here the manuscript lapsed again and finally into utter lamentable confusion. There were scrawled lines wavering across the page on which Secretan seemed to have been trying to note the unearthly music that swelled in his dying ears. As the scrapes and scratches of ink showed, he had tried hard to begin a new sentence. The pen had dropped at last out of his hand upon the paper, leaving a blot and a smear upon it. Lewis heard the tramp of feet along the passage. They were carrying out the dead to the cart. End of chapter 13. Actually, 
you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. By Dion Giants, Back to the show. Salt Lake City, Utah. The Terror by Arthur Mackin. Chapter 14. The End of the Terror. Dr. Lewis maintained that we should never begin to understand the real significance of life until we began to study just those aspects of it which we now dismiss and overlook as utterly inexplicable and therefore unimportant. We were discussing a few months ago the awful shadow of the terror which at length had passed away from the land. I had formed my opinion, partly from observation, partly from certain facts which had been communicated to me, and the passwords having been exchanged, I found that Lewis had come by very different ways to the same end. And yet, he said, it is not a true end, or rather, it is like all the ends of human inquiry. It leads one to a great mystery. We must confess that what has happened might have happened at any time in the history of the world. It did not happen until a year ago, as a matter of fact, and therefore we made up our minds that it could never happen, or one would better say it was outside the range even of imagination. But this is our way. Most people are not quite sure that the Black Death, otherwise the plague, will never invade Europe again. They have made up their complacent minds that it was due to dirt and bad drainage. As a matter of fact, the plague had nothing to do with dirt or with drains, and there is nothing to prevent its ravaging England tomorrow. But if you tell people so, they won't believe you. They won't believe in anything that isn't there at the particular moment when you are talking to them. As with the plague, so with the terror. We could not believe that such a thing could ever happen. Remnant said, truly enough, that whatever it was, it was outside theory, outside our theory. Flatland cannot believe in the cube or the sphere. I agreed with all this. I added that sometimes the world was incapable of seeing, much less believing, that which was before its own eyes. Look, I said, at any 18th century print of a Gothic cathedral. You will find that the trained artistic eye even could not behold in any true sense the building that was before it. I have seen an old print of Peterborough Cathedral that looks as if the artist had drawn it from a clumsy model constructed of bent wire and children's bricks. Exactly, because Gothic was outside the aesthetic theory and therefore vision of the time. You can't believe what you don't see. Rather, you can't see what you don't believe. It was so during the time of the terror. All this bears out what Coleridge said as to the necessity of having the idea before the facts could be of any service to one. Of course, he was right. Mere facts without the correlating idea are nothing and lead to no conclusion. We had plenty of facts, but we could make nothing of them. I went home at the tail of that dreadful procession from Trefloin in a state of mind very near to madness. I heard one of the soldiers saying to the other, there's no rat that'll spike a man to the heart, Bill. I don't know why, 
but I felt that if I heard any more of such talk as that, I should go crazy. It seemed to me that the anchors of reason were parting. I left the party and took the shortcut across the fields into Porth. I looked up Davies in the high street and arranged with him that he should take on any cases I might have that evening, and then I went home and gave my man his instructions to send people on, and then I shut myself up to think it all out, if I could. You must not suppose that my experiences of that afternoon had afforded me the slightest illumination. Indeed, if it had not been that I had seen poor old Griffith's body lying pierced in his own farmyard, I think I should have been inclined to accept one of Secretan's hints and to believe that the whole family had fallen a victim to a collective delusion or hallucination and had shut themselves up and died of thirst through sheer madness. I think there have been such cases. It's the insanity of inhibition, the belief that you can't do something which you are really perfectly capable of doing. But I had seen the body of the murdered man and the wound that had killed him. Did the manuscript left by Secretan give me no hint? Well, it seemed to me to make confusion worse confounded. You have seen it. You know that in certain places it is evidently mere delirium, the wanderings of a dying mind. How was I to separate the facts from the phantasms, lacking the key to the whole enigma? Delirium is often a sort of cloud castle, a sort of magnified and distorted shadow of actualities. But it is a very difficult thing, almost an impossible thing, to reconstruct the real house from the distortion of it, thrown on the clouds of the patient's brain. You see, Sacreton, in writing that extraordinary document, almost insisted on the fact that he was not in his proper sense that for days he had been part asleep, part awake, part delirious. How was one to judge his statement, to separate delirium from fact? In one thing he stood confirmed. You remember he speaks of calling for help up the old chimney of Trefloin. That did seem to fit in with the tales of a hollow, moaning cry that had been heard upon the alt. So far, one could take him as a recorder of actual experiences. And I looked in the old cellars of the farm and found a frantic sort of rabbit hole dug by one of the pillars. Again, he was confirmed. But what was one to make of that story of the chanting voice and the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and the chapter out of some unknown minor prophet? When one has the key, it is easy enough to sort out the facts or the hints of facts from the delusions. But I hadn't the key on that September evening. I was forgetting the tree with lights and fires in it. That, I think, impressed me more than anything with the feeling that Secretan's story was, in the main, a true story. I had seen a like appearance down there in my own garden. But what was it? Now, I was saying that, paradoxically, it is only by the inexplicable things that life can be explained. We are apt to say, you know, a very odd coincidence, and pass the matter by, as if there were no more to be said, or as if that were the end of it. Well, I believe that the only real path lies through the blind alleys. 
What do you mean? Well, this is an instance of what I mean. I told you about Merritt, my brother-in-law, and the capsizing of that boat, the Mary Ann. He had seen, he said, signal lights flashing from one of the farms on the coast, and he was quite certain that the two things were intimately connected as cause and effect. I thought it all nonsense, and I was wondering how I was going to shut him up when a big moth flew into the room through that window, fluttered about, and succeeded in burning itself alive in the lamp. That gave me my cue. I asked Merritt if he knew why moths made for lamps or something of the kind. I thought it would be a hint to him that I was sick of his flashlights and his half-baked theories. So it was. He looked sulky and held his tongue. But a few minutes later, I was called out by a man who had found his little boy dead in a field near his cottage about an hour before. The child was so still, they said, that a great moth had settled on his forehead and only fluttered away when they lifted up the body. It was absolutely illogical, but it was this odd coincidence of the moth in my lamp and the moth on the dead boy's forehead that first set me on the track. I can't say that it guided me in any real sense. It was more like a great flare of red paint on a wall. It rang up my attention, if I may say so. It was a sort of shock, like a bang on the big drum. No doubt Merritt was talking great nonsense that evening, so far as his particular instance went. The flashes of light from the farm had nothing to do with the wreck of the boat. But his general principle was sound. When you hear a gun go off and see a man fall, it is idle to talk of a mere coincidence. I think a very interesting book might be written on this question. I would call it a grammar of coincidence. But as you will remember from having read my notes on the matter, I was called in about 10 days later to see a man named Craddock who had been found in a field near his farm quite dead. This also was at night. His wife found him, and there were some very queer things in her story. She said that the hedge of the field looked as if it were changed. She began to be afraid that she had lost her way and got into the wrong field. Then she said the hedge was lighted up as if there were a lot of glowworms in it, and when she peered over the stile, there seemed to be some kind of glimmering upon the ground, and then the glimmering melted away, and she found her husband's body near where this light had been. Now, this man Craddock had been suffocated, just as the little boy Roberts had been suffocated, and as that man in the Midlands, who took a shortcut one night, had been suffocated. Then I remembered that poor Johnny Roberts had called out about something shiny over the stile just before he played truant. Then, on my part, I had to contribute the very remarkable sight I witnessed here as I looked down over the garden, the appearance as of a spreading tree where I knew there was no such tree, and then the shining and burning of lights and moving colors. Like the poor child and Mrs. Craddock, I had seen something shiny, just as some man in Stratfordshire had seen a dark cloud with points of fire in it floating over the trees, and Mrs. Craddock thought that the shape of the trees in the hedge had changed. My mind almost uttered the word that was wanted, 
but you see the difficulties. This set of circumstances could not, so far as I could see, have any relation with the other circumstances of the terror. How could I connect all this with the bombs and machine guns of the Midlands, with the armed men who kept watch about the munition shops by day and night? Then there was the long list of people here who had fallen over the cliffs or into the quarry. There were the cases of the men stifled in the slime of the marshes. There was the affair of the family murdered in front of their cottage on the highway. There was the capsized Mary Ann. I could not see any thread that could bring all these incidents together. They seemed to me to be hopelessly disconnected. I could not make out any relation between the agency that beat out the brains of the Williams and the agency that overturned the boat. I don't know, but I think it's very likely, if nothing more had happened, that I should have put the whole thing down as an unaccountable series of crimes and accidents which chanced to occur in Marion in the summer of 1915. Well, of course, that would have been an impossible standpoint in view of certain incidents in Merritt's story. Still, if one is confronted by the insoluble, one lets it go at last. If the mystery is inexplicable, one pretends that there isn't any mystery. That is the justification for what is called free thinking. Then came that extraordinary business of Trefloin. I couldn't put that on one side. I couldn't pretend that nothing strange or out of the way had happened. There was no getting over it or getting round it. I had seen with my eyes that there was a mystery and a most horrible mystery. I have forgotten my logic, but one might say that Trefloin demonstrated the existence of a mystery in the figure of death. I took it all home, as I have told you, and sat down for the evening before it. It appalled me not only by its horror, but here again by the discrepancy between its terms. Old Griffith, so far as I could judge, had been killed by the thrust of a pike, or perhaps of a sharpened stake. How could one relate this to the burning tree that had floated over the ridge of the barn? It was as if I said to you, here is a man drowned, and here is a man burned alive show that each death was caused by the same agency. And the moment that I left this particular case of Trefloin and tried to get some light on it from other instances of the terror, I would think of the man in the Midlands who heard the feet of a thousand men rustling in the wood and their voices as if dead men sat up in their bones and talked. And then I would say to myself, and how about that boat overturned in a calm sea? There seemed no end to it, no hope of any solution. It was, I believe, a sudden leap of the mind that liberated me from the tangle. It was quite beyond logic. I went back to that evening when Merritt was boring me with his flashlights, to the moth in the candle, and to the moth on the forehead of poor Johnny Roberts. There was no sense in it, but I suddenly determined that the child and Joseph Craddock, the farmer, and the unnamed Stratfordshire man, all found at night, all asphyxiated, had been choked by vast swarms of moths. I don't pretend even now that this is demonstrated, but I'm sure it's true. Now, suppose you encounter a swarm of these creatures in the dark. 
Suppose the smaller ones fly up your nostrils. You will gasp for breath and open your mouth. Then suppose some hundreds of them fly into your mouth, into your gullet, into your windpipe. What will happen to you? You will be dead in a very short time, choked, asphyxiated. But the moths would be dead too. They would be found in the bodies. The moths? Do you know that it is extremely difficult to kill a moth with cyanide of potassium? Take a frog, kill it, open its stomach. There you will find its dinner of moths and small beetles, and the dinner will shake itself and walk off cheerily to resume an entirely active existence. No, that is no difficulty. Well, now I came to this. I was shutting out all the other cases. I was confining myself to those that came under the one formula. I got to the assumption or conclusion, whichever you like, that certain people had been asphyxiated by the action of moths. I had accounted for that extraordinary appearance of burning or colored lights that I had witnessed myself when I saw the growth of that strange tree in my garden. That was clearly the cloud with points of fire in it that the Stratfordshire man took for a new and terrible kind of poison gas. That was the shiny something that poor little Johnny Roberts had seen over the stile. That was the glimmering light that had led Mrs. Craddock to her husband's dead body. That was the assemblage of terrible eyes that had watched over Treff Loyne by night. Once on the right track, I understood all this, for coming into this room in the dark, I have been amazed by the wonderful burning and the strange fiery colors of the eyes of a single moth as it crept up the pane of glass outside. Imagine the effect of myriads of such eyes, of the movement of these lights and fires in a vast swarm of moths, each insect being in constant motion while it kept its place in the mass. I felt that all this was clear and certain. Then the next step. Of course, we know nothing about moths. Rather, we know nothing of moth reality. For all I know, there may be hundreds of books which treat of moth and nothing but moth. But these are scientific books, and science only deals with surfaces. It has nothing to do with realities. It is impertinent if it attempts to do with realities. To take a very minor matter, we don't even know why the moth desires the flame, but we do know what the moth does not do. It does not gather itself into swarms with the object of destroying human life. But here, by the hypothesis, were cases in which the moth had done this very thing. The moth race had entered, it seemed, into a malignant conspiracy against the human race. It was quite impossible, no doubt. That is to say, it had never happened before, but I could see no escape from this conclusion. These insects, then, were definitely hostile to man. And then I stopped, for I could not see the next step, obvious though it seems to me now. I believe that the soldiers' scraps of talk on the way to Trefloin and back flung the next plank over the gulf. They had spoken of rat poison, of no rat being able to spike a man through the heart. And then suddenly I saw my way clear. If the moths were infected with hatred of men and possessed the design and the power of combining against him, 
why not suppose this hatred, this design, this power shared by other non-human creatures? The secret of the terror might be condensed into a sentence. The animals had revolted against men. Now the puzzle became easy enough. One only had to classify. Take the cases of the people who met their deaths by falling over cliffs or over the edge of quarries. We think of sheep as timid creatures who always ran away. But suppose sheep that don't run away. And after all, in reason, why should they run away? Quarry or no quarry, cliff or no cliff, what would happen to you if a hundred sheep ran after you instead of running from you? There would be no help for it. They would have you down and beat you to death or stifle you. Then suppose man, woman, or child near a cliff's edge or a quarry side and a sudden rush of sheep. Clearly, there is no help. There is nothing for it but to go over. There can be no doubt that that is what happened in all these cases. And again, you know the country, and you know how a herd of cattle will sometimes pursue people through the fields in a solemn, stolid sort of way. They behave as if they wanted to close in on you. Townspeople sometimes get frightened and scream and run. You or I would take no notice, or at the utmost, wave our sticks at the herd, which will stop dead or lumber off. But suppose they don't lumber off. The mildest old cow, remember, is stronger than any man. What can one man or half a dozen men do against half a hundred of these beasts no longer restrained by that mysterious inhibition which has made for ages the strong, the humble slaves of the weak? But if you are botanizing in the marsh, like that poor fellow who was staying at Porth, and forty or fifty young cattle gradually close round you, and refuse to move when you shout and wave your stick, but get closer and closer instead, and get you into the slime. Again, where is your help? If you haven't got an automatic pistol, you must go down and stay down, while the beasts lie quietly on you for five minutes. It was a quicker death for poor Griffith of Trefloin. One of his own beasts gored him to death with one sharp thrust of its horn into his heart. And from that morning, those within the house were closely besieged by their own cattle and horses and sheep. And when those unhappy people within opened a window to call for help or to catch a few drops of rainwater to relieve their burning thirst, the cloud waited for them with its myriad eyes of fire. Can you wonder that Secretan's statement reads in places like mania? You perceive the horrible position of those people in Trefloin. Not only did they see death advancing on them, but advancing with incredible steps, as if one were to die not only in nightmare, but by nightmare. But no one in his wildest, most fiery dreams ever had imagined such a fate. I am not astonished that Secretan at one moment suspected the evidence of his own senses, at another surmised that the world's end had come. And how about the Williams who were murdered on the highway near here? The horses were the murderers, the horses that afterwards stampeded the camp below. By some means which is still obscure to me, they lured that family into the road and beat their brains out. Their shod hoofs 
were the instruments of execution. And as for the Marianne, the boat that was capsized, I have no doubt that it was overturned by a sudden rush of the porpoises that were gambling about in the water of Lamac Bay. A porpoise is a heavy beast. Half a dozen of them could easily upset a light rowing boat. The munition works? Their enemy was rats. I believe that it has been calculated that in Greater London, the number of rats is about equal to the number of human beings. That is, there are about seven millions of them. The proportion would be about the same in all the great centers of population. And the rat, moreover, is on occasion migratory in its habits. You can understand now that story of the Semiramis beating about the mouth of the Thames and at last cast away by Arkachan, her only crew dry heaps of bones. The rat is an expert boarder of ships, and so one can understand the tale told by the frightened man who took the path by the wood that led up from the new munition works. He thought he heard a thousand men treading softly through the wood and chattering to one another in some horrible tongue. What he did hear was the marshalling of an army of rats, their array before the battle. And conceive the terror of such an attack. Even one rat in a fury is said to be an ugly customer to meet. Conceive then the eruption of these terrible swarming myriads rushing upon the helpless, unprepared, astonished workers in the munition shops. There can be no doubt, I think, that Dr. Lewis was entirely justified in these extraordinary conclusions. As I say, I had arrived at pretty much the same end by different ways, but this rather as to the general situation. While Lewis had made his own particular study of those circumstances of the terror that were within his immediate purview as a physician in large practice in the southern part of Marion. Of some of the cases which he reviewed, he had, no doubt, no immediate or first-hand knowledge, but he judged these instances by their similarity to the facts which had come under his personal notice. He spoke of the affairs of the quarry at Lanthangle, on the analogy of the people who were found dead at the bottom of the cliffs near Porth, and he was no doubt justified in doing so. He told me that, thinking the whole matter over, he was hardly more astonished by the terror in itself than by the strange way in which he had arrived at his conclusions. You know, he said, those certain evidences of animal malevolence which we knew of, the bees that stung the child to death, the trusted sheepdogs turning savage, and so forth. Well, I got no light whatever from all this. It suggested nothing to me, simply because... I had not got that idea which Coleridge rightly holds necessary in all inquiry. Facts qua facts, as we said, mean nothing and come to nothing. You do not believe, therefore you cannot see. And then when the truth at last appeared, it was through the whimsical coincidence, as we call such signs, of the moth in my lamp and the moth on the dead child's forehead this, I think, is very extraordinary. And there seems to have been one beast that remained faithful, the dog at Trefloin. That is strange. That remains a mystery. 
it would not be wise even now to describe too closely the terrible scenes that were to be seen in the munition areas of the North and the Midlands during the black months of the terror. Out of the factories issued at black midnight, the shrouded dead in their coffins, and their very kinsfolk did not know how they had come by their deaths. All the towns were full of houses of mourning, were full of dark and terrible rumors, incredible as the incredible reality. There were things done and suffered that perhaps never will be brought to light. Memories and secret traditions of these things will be whispered in families, delivered from father to son, growing wilder with the passage of the years, but never growing wilder than the truth. It is enough to say that the cause of the Allies was for a while in deadly peril. The men at the front called in their extremity for guns and shells. No one told them what was happening in the places where these munitions were made. At first, the position was nothing less than desperate. Men in high places were almost ready to cry mercy to the enemy. But after the first panic, measures were taken, such as those described by Merritt in his account of the matter. The workers were armed with special weapons. Guards were mounted. Machine guns were placed in position. Bombs and liquid flame were ready against the obscene hordes of the enemy. And the burning clouds found a fire fiercer than their own. Many deaths occurred amongst the airmen, but they too were given special guns, arms that scattered shot broadcast, and so drove away the dark flights that threatened the airplanes. And then, in the winter of 1915 to 16, the terror ended suddenly as it had begun. Once more, a sheep was a frightened beast that ran instinctively from a little child. The cattle were again solemn, stupid creatures, void of harm. The spirit and the convention of malignant design passed out of the hearts of all the animals. The chains that they had cast off for a while were thrown again about them. And finally, there comes the inevitable why. Why did the beasts who had been humbly and patiently subject to man or affrighted by his presence suddenly know their strength and learn how to league together and declare bitter war against their ancient master. It is a most difficult and obscure question. I give what explanation I have to give with very great diffidence and an eminent disposition to be corrected if a clearer light can be found. Some friends of mine, for whose judgment I have very great respect, are inclined to think that there was a certain contagion of hate they hold that the fury of the whole world at war, the great passion of death that seems driving all humanity to destruction, infected at last these lower creatures, and in place of their native instinct of submission, gave them rage and wrath and ravening. This may be the explanation. I cannot say that it is not so, because I do not profess to understand the working of the universe but I confess that the theory strikes me as fanciful. There may be a contagion of hate, as there is a contagion of smallpox. I do not know, but I hardly believe it. In my opinion, and it is only an opinion, the source of the great revolt of the beasts is to be sought in a much subtler region of inquiry. I believe that the subjects revolted 
because the king abdicated. Man has dominated the beast throughout the ages. The spiritual has reigned over the rational through the peculiar quality and grace of spirituality that men possess, that makes a man to be that which he is. And when he maintained this power and grace, I think it is pretty clear that between him and the animals there was a certain treaty and alliance. There was supremacy on the one hand and submission on the other. But at the same time, there was between the two that cordiality that exists between lords and subjects in a well-organized state. I know a socialist who maintains that Chaucer's Canterbury Tells give a picture of true democracy. I do not know about that, but I see that Knight and Miller were able to get on quite pleasantly together, just because the Knight knew that he was a Knight and the Miller knew that he was a Miller. If the Knight had had conscientious objections to his knightly grade, while the Miller saw no reason why he should not be a Knight, I am sure that their intercourse would have been difficult, unpleasant, and perhaps murderous. So with man, I believe in the strength and truth of tradition. A learned man said to me a few weeks ago, when I have to choose between the evidence of tradition and the evidence of a document, I always believe the evidence of tradition. Documents may be falsified and often are falsified. Tradition is never falsified. This is true, and therefore, I think, one may put trust in the vast body of folklore which asserts that there was once a worthy and friendly alliance between man and the beasts. Our popular tale of Dick Whittington and his cat no doubt represents the adaptation of a very ancient legend to a comparatively modern personage. But we may go back into the ages and find the popular tradition asserting that not only are the animals the subjects, but also the friends of man. All that was in virtue of that singular spiritual element in man which the rational animals do not possess. Spiritual does not mean respectable. It does not even mean moral. It does not mean good in the ordinary acceptation of the word. It signifies the royal prerogative of man, differentiating him from the beast. For long ages he has been putting off this royal robe. He has been wiping the balm of consecration from his own breast. He has declared again and again that he is not spiritual, but rational, that is, the equal of the beasts over whom he was once sovereign. He has vowed that he is not Orpheus, but Caliban. But the beasts have also within them something which corresponds to the spiritual quality in men. We are content to call it instinct. They perceived that the throne was vacant. Not even friendship was possible between them and the self-deposed monarch. If he were not king, he was a sham an impostor, a thing to be destroyed. Hence, I think, the terror. They have risen once. They may rise again. End of chapter 14. End of The Terror by Arthur Mackin.